Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at the 6100 Fairview Road office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Liz Cribbs, Senior Strategist of Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services at UBS, who will share with us some ways we can think about engaging our families around values, goals, and wealth. As always, we welcome your questions and feedback, and we hope you enjoy the show. Our guest today is Liz Cribbs, Executive Director, Senior Strategist of Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services at UBS, who's going to share with us some tips and suggestions for raising financially responsible kids at all ages and stages, and how we can share our values with them along the way. So Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me, Jack. Well, we're glad to have you, and we look forward to hearing your remarks here in just a second, Liz. But before we begin, I wanted to remind everyone that if you have a question following today's conversation, or you'd like more information regarding anything that we have discussed, please email it to me at jack.butler.ubs.com, and we'll be sure to follow up with you in that regard. So Liz, I saw a study recently from the American Psychological Association that stated that 95% of survey respondents agreed that parents should talk to their children about money, but only 37% said they actually talk about money on a regular basis with their kids. So a lot of our clients' lists have told us that they'd like to take a proactive approach to educating their kids around money and to teach them the importance of saving, spending, and gifting. They're just not really sure when and how to start. Can you just give us some insight of uh, maybe a good starting point for them? I think that'd be great. Sure, that's a great point, Jack. And those stats are a little jarring. Almost all parents know that they should talk to kids about money, but just over one third do it regularly. Also, research shows that children have formed basic ideas about money that will influence the rest of their lives by age seven. So in terms of when, it's never too early to start. And Jack, I'm going to share something else with you. Research also shows that by age seven, children are aware of family wealth and they can rank their classmates in wealth based on the houses they live in and the cars their parents drive. So these little ones are smart. Even if we don't come right out and talk about money, they pick up money messages early and often and start forming their own views and values, which often mirror ours. Yeah, that's kind of eye-opening and, and kind of thinking back to, you know, when you're growing up, you, you do equate whether it's, you know, big houses or cars and whatnot to wealth. And so obviously, whether we like it or not, that process starts pretty early. So I guess when it comes to kids, I mean, how do you start and at what age do you feel like that's appropriate? So it's important to remember that all families and kids are different. So I'm going to be speaking in broad terms here, but hopefully listeners can take this guidance with a heavy dose of their own tailoring and sense of humor and come up with a plan that works for them. Jack, remind me, how old is your daughter? Our daughter is two years old. I feel like her concept of money right now revolves around this Minnie Mouse cash register that she has. And every time she swipes <laughs> a card, it opens it and Minnie gets all excited. So maybe that's Disney's way of kind of subliminally telling her that, hey, more money you spend on, uh, on Disney stuff, uh, the happier you'll be. But she's two. So is that too early or uh, when would be a, a better age for that? <laughs> 
You know what? So you have a little time, but not much. It's actually around two to three years old that children start to realize that things cost money. And kids as young as three might ask for something at the store or see packages arrive at your front door and wonder about the cost. And it's around the pre-K time of three or four years old when parents can begin introducing the give, save, spend concept. So essentially three jars, one for each, often giving their young children a monthly allowance, say a dollar for each year of their age. And they can discuss the concept of saving dollars for something that costs more, spending right away, or giving. UBS actually has a My Money Book kit for children ages three to eight-ish that have those give, save, spend stickers and some guidance on how to talk to kids about needs and wants, saving, et cetera. It also comes with a coloring book and other activities for kids. That's great. And it is actually kind of a wake-up call for parents like me with young children. And I think normally you would assume that you wouldn't do that until they're much, much older. But I think it sounds like starting earlier at a young age definitely is important. And I actually ordered one of those kits after we had discussed about that, My Money Book Kit. We plan on using it with Eliza. So I feel like that'll definitely be beneficial, especially since she's a huge fan of stickers too at this age. <laughs> and kind of shifting to elementary and middle school age children, it's to my understanding that that's really the age in which you can really begin to introduce the concept of chores and allowance. And then, you know, hopefully that's when I can really put her to work and she can start helping out around the house. So any insights <laughs> to, to that age? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. And it's funny, while in theory, it may make sense to equate chores with allowance, this can actually backfire because you're giving your kids a choice. Those not motivated by money or busy with other things, I know we talked about soccer before this call, may choose not to do their assigned chores and just forgo the extra money. And then you're kind of stuck. So we suggest setting a baseline of chores that actually need to be done just because your child is part of the family and all family members have shared responsibility for taking care of the house. I know you do, Jack. I do, too. It's not always fun. But kind of including your kids in that, whether it's making their beds, cleaning their rooms, walking the dog, it doesn't have to be a lot or too complicated, but just some things that they're responsible for that will increase as they get older. And similarly, we like to view allowance as a matter of sharing in the family's wealth. So giving them a small amount weekly or monthly to manage on their own will help them expand on that give, save, spend concept. But parents can offer extra money for going above and beyond, like caring for siblings. They can even put a chore board together with extra ways to earn money. This also helps younger kids think about budgeting and saving or going the extra mile for what they want. Yeah, I think that's so important to have those just because chores so that they don't equate every action that they do to help out around the house with money or being compensated for it, if you will. So what else as a parent of a young child can I expect and what else can I do to, to better prepare for our daughter as she kind of approaches that age? Sure. So two things that are actually really important in healthy money messaging that might not be intuitive, you know, off the top of one's head is basically values and communication. So I wanted to tackle values first. My team likes to say values are caught, not taught. So helping them develop gratitude, empathy, and introducing them to service is something that will really stay with them. And this will help shift their focus and center away from money a bit. 
And it doesn't have to be rocket science. Gratitude can be as simple as writing a short thank you note to a grandparent for a gift or drawing a picture for them if your child is too young. Empathy could be making brownies for a neighbor or friend going through a hard time or going with you to pick out a gift for the bus driver at the end of the year, just an act of kindness. And then service could be really what I described earlier, doing something special for a neighbor or a friend or simple service to the community, like picking up trash or sorting clothes for a drive. And once we get through COVID restrictions, visiting local nursing homes or retirement communities is always very rewarding for everyone involved. When kids see you focusing on these things, they get the message that these things are important. And then second, I want to touch on communication. Parents these days are at a bit of a disadvantage. When we were young, we went to the grocery store with our parents and saw them make choices, apples this week because they were on sale and bananas the following. These days, through no fault of our own, things just show up at our doorstep from Fresh Direct, Amazon, and the like. And it's harder for kids to get in our heads and see that we still compare prices, albeit online, or decide against something because it's too expensive. So the trick is to tell them about it. I was talking to my 16-year-old, telling her about this podcast and asking her what advice she would give to parents. And she told me three things that all had to do with values and communication, which was really interesting. So these were her words of advice on raising financially responsible kids. First, she said, don't be afraid to say no every once in a while, which shocked me a little, but I guess kids know what they need to hear. The second thing was go that extra 10 blocks to your own bank like dad does so you don't have to pay the ATM charges, even if you have a lot in the bank. And I actually never realized she picked up on this. And by the way, her definition of a lot in the bank is a pretty low bar. But you can still demonstrate that small choices of saving can actually add up. And then her last was work hard. And this is an interesting one. But the takeaway here is, again, values are caught, not taught. So work can mean so many things, housework, caring for an elder parent, volunteering work, office work, but kids are watching us. And when they see that we value committing our time and efforts to something we care about, they'll be more likely to value dedication and effort themselves. Oh, those are such great points, Liz. And your daughter clearly seems as if she's well uh, wise beyond her years uh, with her insight. Those are some very astute observations. But for a lot of our clients who may be listening to this, who have those middle school age kids, high school age kids, or even grandkids for that matter, a lot of them might say that, well, you know, those are all great points, but, you know, just getting my kid to really, you know, sit down and listen at that phase of life can be challenging. So what else can parents do to really instill those values and the importance of communication on money for kids in kind of that middle school to high school age range? Yeah, it's a great question. In the world of digital payments, um, it can, can be a little bit hard. So one tip that I have that's pretty easy and practical, but can help children and teens think through spending, saving, and weighing the cost of something is what I like to call the Amazon account. And let me explain this. So kids these days have a lot of things. And for tweens and teens who are out of that toy phase, when pressed to give an idea for a birthday gift or a holiday gift from a doting grandparent, they're often at a loss. 
But then two weeks later, when you're running through the mall with them, you know, they find 10 things that they want, or they see a friend that has something that they might want, and they're not shy and asking. So what I did was have all of the relatives, let's say around their birthday or holiday time, give them Amazon gift cards. That's what we asked for, which I promptly spent myself, but don't judge me. I first tallied each stack of the cards up for my son and daughter and recorded the total dollar gift card amount for each of them. I actually chose to record the amount in my Google contacts so each of my kids could access the running total anywhere. And this way they could see what was in their quote unquote account. And if there was something they wanted from Amazon or another store for that matter, that's a non-essential, I would often say they could use their Amazon money for it. And the dialogue, it's funny when they're paying for it quickly shifts from the shirt they have to have or the set of weights they can't live without to what's my total mom? How much do I have left? Can you split the cost with me? I'm breeding little negotiators here. My daughter even tries to get me to cover tax and shipping sometimes when she's been particularly good in school or done something well. But the point is they think a little bit more carefully about spending and saving and pleasure delaying when they have a total that will actually dwindle if they spend it too quickly. They also like to look back at their purchases, which I bullet out along with the cost, often shaking their head at the money wasted on that pack of temporary tattoos or that Yeti mug. So that's just one idea. And again, we're just thinking of simple, practical things for kids. And then another easy one is opening up a bank account for them, which many parents do for their young children. But as they get older, it's important to talk to them about it. Take them with you to the bank to deposit checks they might receive for holidays or show them how to do it on your phone. Tell them it's their money to use for future important things and let them experience the joy of actually seeing the balance rise. And when they get older, they can sit down with people like you, Jack, and John, and go over investment options. So it's really kind of a journey that you're taking them along as they get older and older. Yeah, and I think it also forces them to really think critically about when they you know, do get these gifts that come in from time to time to think whether or not it's something that they really want, as opposed to just kind of impulsively going out and having to spend it immediately. I think I, I've heard you say before that most people form their view of money typically between the ages of eight and 12. And I think that's based upon their own life experiences. That's when you can start seeing whether or not someone will become a saver or a spender. And to your mm-hmm. point about middle school age children, I mean, I'd, I'd have to point out that my wife's father was a CPA for 35 years. And when Jillian was in middle school, he told her that if you, know, you open up a bank account and you start saving in it, I will match a, a portion of it. And at a very wow. early age, she started putting all of her babysitting money in that savings account, she just kind of had this uh, mentality that I'm going to use this to buy a house one day. I mean, I think, which is pretty rare for a 15, 16 year old girl to think that far out in advance. But I will say mm-hmm. that when the time came, we actually bought our first home, a good portion of the down payment for our home came from babysitting money. And, and she would wow. just tell me that she always knew that, that would be important to save and, and use it for something meaningful like that, like buying a house or But at the same time, I think she also thought back to all the things that she thought she wanted at that age, definitely not relevant 10 years later, let alone one year later. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, give herself a pat on the back for resisting all the temptations at that age of of buying kind of the the latest and neatest uh, pair of shoes or purse or whatnot. So I think that ties into what you're saying as well for kids at that age. 
And then also kind of uh, shifting gears to young adults. So maybe these are, I know that your son Carter is about to go to college next year, whether it's kids in college or once they graduate college and start on their own, what are some advice and tips you can give for clients, kids or grandkids that are kind of in that early adulthood phase of life? Sure, Jack. Yeah. So as kids approach the end of high school and enter college, the focus should definitely be understanding budgets for both current and future expenses, not just fun and entertainment. And again, I think that's wonderful, you know, the story you told because early on it was introduced, you know, to your wife that buying a home or saving for something big, something special that would be matched by, you know, her dad, you know, was introduced into the conversation very early. And I think that's great. So I really think that, again, talking to kids of all ages and stages about the cost of things is important. You know, when my 18-year-old got his license a few years ago, we got hit with an additional bill of $1,500 for car insurance. And my first instinct was just to write the check and quickly move on to the next thing in my to-do list. There were 100 things, but I stopped and I actually called him over and I went over the bill and he was actually shocked at the cost of adding him to our policy. And, you know, I just think that it's important to really show kids unless they don't know, unless you really talk to them about it. Now, that didn't stop him from scraping the car while trying to get gas a few months later, but he did understand why when I asked him to pay for half of the cost of fixing the car, he understood why, because already just to let him drive, we were paying 1500 more. So the same thing can be done with college tuition, the meal plans at college. If you don't discuss it, kids really may think that money does grow on trees, or at least there's an endless supply of it. So include them in the conversation and your world and the decisions that you're making. And just as I mentioned service at a young age, that that's important. It's really in the teen years that you want to encourage kids to take initiative by volunteering independently and choosing causes that they're passionate about, because this really helps clarify their own philanthropic values and gets them outside of their own circles and their own heads, frankly. Research shows that people gain more satisfaction from helping others than, let's say, buying something for themselves. Happiness is a lot bigger than money. And helping others can add to that feeling of purpose, build confidence, and even life skills. So again, it's at that teenage to early adult phase that you really want to encourage that and encourage kids to follow their passions, whatever that is in terms of helping people or helping animals. Yeah, and, and I think not only is it important for them to understand you know, personal finance for their own benefit, but also it allows them to, to your point about you know, kind of seeing the greater good and the ways in which they can mm -hmm. use use that for a bigger purpose. And it also forces them to really think about, you know, what causes are important to them. I know that we have worked with clients before in the past about with donor advice funds and the family gets together every year around Christmas time and talks about, you know, what causes they want to give uh, to every year out of that fund. And it really forces the kids to kind of sit down and think about, you know, where they see a need and, and where they feel like they can really you know, make a difference. And certainly volunteering their time is of utmost importance, but then also having that dynamic where they're donating a portion of their treasure as well, I think is uh, of the utmost importance. But in, in shifting gears for a second, Liz, I want to talk to a point that many of our clients have shared with us that I think will really resonate. And that's to do with the fact that we work with a lot of first generation wealth creators, so to speak, and they see their kids or grandkids growing up very differently than they did, which often brings about, you know, quite a bit of heartburn and concern. But their life experiences 
because of their own financial circumstances are not the same from the next generation. And I think there's this kind of pervasive concern about whether it's, you know, spoiling them or, you know, how much is, is too much. Can you just give us some insights as to how these clients who feel this way can allay these concerns and, and maybe how they can go about, you know, finding that, that balance between kind of empowering kids, teaching them about finances and money and, and gifting and all of that without having them take it for granted. Any insight to any of that? Yeah, Jack, you know, two things come to mind. One is touching on something that you said before with donor advised funds and things like that. If kids are growing up in a situation where there is family money and there is some money to spend, again, going back to being simple about it, if you have a donor advised fund, you can create sub accounts that the kids can have a certain amount of money to give away every year and get them involved in giving. Or you can do something as simple as literally taking an index card and writing five $50 coupons. And I did this for the holiday time for my kids this past holiday. As I just said here, you each can give away $50 to five charities that you care about, or you can group them, give 250 to one, but you know, you're giving them the gift of giving and kind of getting them involved in that. So that, that's just one thing in terms of getting them involved in a simple way. But the other is really about sharing that family history and stories that can have a very positive impact on future generations. And I really feel like this is the starting point, either in informal or informal discussions, teachable moments to talk about and share you know, your family history can really ground conversation and connect family members. And it's not just you know the money stories, it's the life before kids stories, the family history, the tough times, the business failures and successes, and really to share those with that first generation wealth creator to share those with their kids to let their kids know, yes, we have been successful, but we've also been unsuccessful at times and we've risked and we've tried again. And, you know, just to put this into context, several well-known authors have written about this. Charles Collier, who was the author of Wealth and Families, wrote, the best practices of successful families include telling and retelling the family's most important stories. And Jay Hughes, another advisor, wrote, stories can inoculate families against the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and three generation syndrome. And he went on further to say, every family I know that is successful in preserving its wealth sets aside time at family gatherings for sharing of its unique history. And this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations isn't just a myth. Research shows that 70% of inherited family wealth is gone by the end of the second generation and 90% is gone by the third. Again, this is mind blowing to me, but digging into it a little bit, the reason for this 60% of the time is actually a breakdown in communication and 25% of the time is lack of air preparation. And 12% is really the failure of the family to come together around a mission. Only 3% of the time, it's because of something to do with the estate plan or how the assets were managed. So really, the focus should be communication, it should be preparing those heirs, and it should be coming together as a family. Really, our team believes that bringing the family together routinely to share stories, make decisions, plan and learn is the antidote to wealth erosion. I find that absolutely fascinating. And you brought up the fact that if generational wealth transfers tend to be unsuccessful for a number of reasons, but it really doesn't come down to the investments or the estate plan. 
the vast majority of time, it just comes down to communication, just a lack of preparation and just the failure to really align in what the family is trying to accomplish. And it makes me think of the Vanderbilt family. I think I, I read an article several months ago that talked about how, I mean, at the time, Cornelius Vanderbilt had created this empire and upon his passing, everyone knows, you know, the, the George Vanderbilt's and, you know, his heirs building these enormous summer homes all around the country and, and really enjoying uh, the wealth that he had created. You also uh, you know, think about the fact that at a family reunion in the 1970s, I believe there wasn't a single heir left that had a net worth more than a million dollars. Wow. And even one of the richest families in American history at the time, even that had difficulty kind of passing down from one generation to the next. So on this point, because I think it's, it's such a, an important one, what would you say to the client whose kids or grandkids are adults? Maybe they're in their late 20s, they're in their 30s, maybe even 40s for that matter. And when we run these financial plans for clients, Liz, what we often end up finding and determining is that based upon their financial situation and their goals, there's a high likelihood that there could be a substantial amount of wealth left over when they're no longer with us. And I think that's such an eye-opening kind of thought process for some. And they, I think, oftentimes you know, wonder about what the impact that could have on their family given their dynamics. So you know, what would you say to those clients that may think that it's too late to talk about these things? You know, clearly their kids' worldviews and who they are is, is pretty much cooked at this point. What insight would you give to those clients that maybe trying to find a way to bridge those conversations with, with adult children. Yeah, you know, Jack, it's never too late to educate and to focus on education with money. You know, I was going to mention, I, I didn't mention this before, but, you know, UBS has this great online financial education platform. It's for middle schoolers, high schoolers, college and post-college. We've actually shared that with even adult children or widows or people who might not have had a chance to be the primary money manager in the family or, or in charge of that. One thing I would say is education is important and your team I know does a really good job with talking your clients through that and investment options and scenarios and things like that. So that's one thing that at any age and stage, you know, I think the focus should be on. And then the other is just, again, you know, I feel like communicating, even if you're talking about adult children, your wishes for that money, your wishes that your adult children will be stewards for this money, not just for themselves, but for future generations. A lot of our clients say that they don't want this money to be a subsidy. They want it to be tapped into for things that they value, like starting a new business or something, you know, a special endeavor or a home like your wife. So again, I think education and communication, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I just think that th those are really the critical thing. Yeah. I think I've heard uh, Warren Buffett say before that, you know, when it came to how much he was going to leave his kids, I think he's said several times that he wanted to leave them enough to where they felt like that they could do anything that they wanted to do but at the same time, didn't want to leave them too much to where they feel like that they didn't have to do anything. While that sounds admirable, I think Warren Buffett's kids are due to inherit about $2 billion each. So maybe his <laughs> view of uh, what, what's enough to do anything is different than most, but I think the concept is there. Ultimately, I think, you know, like you said, I think a lot of clients want to make sure that, you know, their kids feel equipped and empowered with that wealth, mm -hmm. but at the same time, don't take it for granted and end up, you know, making poor choices uh, as a result of it. 
And you also, I know you talked before in the past about you know, this idea of family meetings. And I think you brought up some good points in the past, Liz, throughout the course of our conversations about how, you know, oftentimes clients have these misperceptions about family meetings in the sense that they kind of view it as a very kind of formal and stoic gathering where the patriarch or mom or dad kind of lectures to the family members about, you know, what it is that they want and kind of what their view of, of money is and, and how everybody should think the way that they do. Just talk a little about the concept of family meetings and how it's kind of evolved over the years and how it can be beneficial for improving upon communication uh, within a family. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And um, we could do a whole nother podcast on family meetings because I could talk about that too forever. But yeah, it's really a time for the family to come together. A lot of times we do it with clients once a year. Obviously, Jack, you and John are the center of, of that meeting. But the topics range, you know, everyone has an equal voice. No one's spoken at, you know, there aren't a lot of presentations, but it's really, you know, what matters to the family at the time. So we do a really fun values exercise where people can share stories and values and kind of where they are mentally, you know, what's going on in their lives at that time. But also it can center around philanthropy. If the family wants to do something around philanthropy together or a business sale, or even, you know, again, parents in terms of talking about trusts and estates, sometimes they feel like they have to tell all or say absolutely nothing. And what we like to say is there's a lot of middle ground that you can tell your kids, you know, we've been successful. We have set, you know, trust for you and for your kids in the future. This is how we think about these trusts and how we'd like you to think about them and what we value and and what we think that the money should be used for. So it's really kind of just an open place to talk about these things that, again, we heard that the wealth transition fail because of lack of communication. And this is a chance for families to get together around, you know, important things that are going on at the time. Appreciate you sharing that because I think what really, you know, clients have to determine is really kind of two choices that they have in the sense that, you know, they can be proactive. They can maybe begin to have these conversations as, as painful as it may seem to be. I think what most clients have shared with us is that once they end up, you know, talking about these different topics, you know, how it's almost liberating and how it just, it, it's a kind of a weight off their shoulders because I think deep down the elephant in the room that everybody's trying to avoid really comes down to the main thing that they're trying to avoid is, is where God forbid something happens to mom and dad unexpectedly. And then all of a sudden kids and grandkids are kind of having this lottery effect where they haven't been prepared for it at all. And kind Mm -hmm. of just seeing, you know, how the clock is made all at once, I think that can be very overwhelming and not really lead to good results in the long run. So you shared with us a lot of great points, Liz. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to leave us with? Any other parting words of wisdom for our audience to consider for today's episode? Yeah, you know, just one last one. And and I know I've talked about this a lot, but, you know, in terms of communication, even if your kids, and I'm the parent of two teens, even if they don't act like they're listening to you, they really are hearing you and will remember a lot of what you tell them. And even what you tell them that you don't want them to remember or what they hear. I mean, they're smart and they will remember. So just, you know, I think the biggest takeaway is to intentionally share your stories, share your values and your worries and dreams with your children and make sure to ask them about theirs and just have fun. Yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. And I've heard you say before in the past, Liz, that the greatest misperception of communication is the illusion that it's taking place. So Mm -hmm. I think too often people assume that, you know, they've covered these things or talked about them, but to kind of tie it to the very beginning of our conversation in the sense that 
everyone agrees that it's important to talk about these things, but you know, only a third of those have actually done it on a regular basis. And it's definitely not a, a one and done exercise, I think is, uh, is an extremely important takeaway. So just with that said, Liz, just in conclusion, just can't tell you how much we appreciate your insight and uh, feedback this afternoon. Also just wanted to remind the audience that Liz is available to you and our team as a resource. If you wanted to discuss any of these ideas in more detail, John and I are happy to have a further conversation if that's of interest. And I greatly appreciate the time and I hope everyone enjoyed the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Neither UBS Financial Services Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures we provide them about the products and services we offer. For more information, please review the following PDF document at ubs.com backslash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. Mm-hmm.